a number of years ago, in fact, on a Mother's Day, probably four years ago now, I was, um, I was with some people um, in Jacksonville, literally at a golf tournament, and had a young police officer in our church, kid who grew up in our church. I've known him all of his life. He grew up with my kids. And he called me. I mean, I just happened to look down and I saw his number pop up on my phone. And it, 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 didn't, it wasn't a shock that he would call me. He, would be, he, he might call me for different things. It was just a little surprising. And, and instantly I knew something was wrong. I didn't know what was wrong. I just had that, I call it that pastoral sixth sense that you just know that's not, this is not a normal thing. So I, I excused myself, step away with the people that I was with and, and, and answered the phone. And he said, uh, Pastor, this is Robert. He said, uh, Brady is not going to make it. Brady was his um, five-year-old son. I said, what happened? And he said, he, he stopped breathing. And we called rescue and rescue came to the house. And he said, they're in the ambulance and they're taking him to the hospital. His wife's name is Amanda. <clears throat> he said, Amanda doesn't know that he's not going to make it. He said, I know he's not going to make it. Well, I was 40 minutes from the hospital, and I knew this was going to be just a, a devastation that one of those just rare things. Was going to, and, and so I left where I was, met them at the hospital, and, and knew, knew the doctors, knew the people there. And we, I asked, I said, don't tell her until I get there. I said, it, it'll be a lot better if you just wait till I get there. So by the time I had gotten there, they finally had, they had concluded they were not going to be able to resuscitate him, and he had died. And this was a young couple that, that I've known all their lives. And this girl, the mom of this little boy, was just absolutely devastated. I mean, beyond almost anything I could ever describe to you. And I'm old enough now to these kids that, that are, and they're, in the, they're a young couple in their 30s, that they will... They're, they're just like my own kids. I mean, I just know them that well. She teaches for us in our school. And she, she would get to points in her day where she just was uncontrollably in anguish, sad, just couldn't get over it. And she'd come over to my office. And I, I, have, a, I have a large office complex with a, a conference room and a study room and a, an office area and then a sitting area with couches. And and have secretaries in, in my office, and so it was all appropriate. But, I mean, sometimes Amanda would just come in and just lay on my couch and cry. And I w sometimes I wouldn't even stop working. I mean, she didn't have any place to go, and, and there was nobody that could really console her, and I would just, just help her through her grief through this process. And, and in that experience, she kept saying to me, which I actually was talking about your, to your pastor about a little bit today, she said, you know, all my life, I've memorized the Bible. All my life, I've, I've learned to quote scripture. All my life, I, I've been in Awana, and I've been in youth group, and I've, I've done all the things. She says, but there's some things that, that I just don't know that they're real. and they're, They really have to be true. She says, you, you know, this really, really has to be true. Well, I believe it's true. I believe, everything, I, think, I believe everything in the Bible is true. Amen. 
And I said, Amanda, just because you've, you've gone through the loss of it, the, you, you're suffering, it doesn't make it any less true. I said, what it is, is you have to, you have to work the truth back into your own life. And so I did a study <clears throat> on heaven and what I'm going to share with you tonight is a, it is a compilation of conversations that I had with her to help her through what does it mean to believe in heaven? What does it mean to live with a hope, a real concrete hope in the future of heaven? And so let's look at this, and I'm going to read some, some scripture to you, and I'm just going to kind of work you through the, the passage and, and what I think is a conglomeration of, of everything that the Bible says about a new heaven and a new earth. Let's start in Revelation 19 and verse number 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 21, just a page over. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I want you to, if you mark in your Bibles, I want you to underline new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now, Revelation 21 is about the no mores. And I, John, saw, so think about it. John is a credible witness, and he's telling us what he sees with his eyes and what he hears. He said, I, saw, I John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard, so I saw and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow. So, so linguistically, it's really translated, there should be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he, sat, he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So, so here's what Jesus is saying to John. Write these words down because they are true and faithful words. You get that? And he said unto to me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give unto him that is a thirst, or him that is thirsty of the fountain of the water of life freely. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, 
and he shall be my son. Revelation 22, verse 1, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and out of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the street, was twelve manner of fruits, yielded her, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. There should be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, these things are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly, and blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. In a recent poll that was done, in fact, it's done now several years ago, they asked Americans, not, not people around the world, but people in America, what they thought about heaven and what they believed. 67% of Americans say they believe in heaven. Interestingly, 90% of African Americans believe in heaven and over 90% of church-going evangelicals believe in heaven. There's almost universal among church-going people this idea that there is a heaven. But when you get into a conversation with them about what is heaven going to be like, the answers get really fuzzy. People have this vague idea of what the future is. See, people often under, uh, struggle with an understanding of the book of the Revelation. They don't want to say it's not true. It's just that the difficulties and complexities, the symbols and the content and the meaning of everything that was written makes it hard for us to understand. Isn't it interesting that the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, never tells us that we're to figure out the details of the book of Revelation. We're just simply told to read it, and by reading it, we are going to be blessed. Let me try to help bring it into clarity for you. The book of Revelation was written to a group of people, to a group of Christians, and to a number of churches that were going through some very difficult times and difficult things. In fact, it was written to them to help them get through the difficulties and the adversities. They were going through terrible things here on earth. The book of Revelation is written to help point to them and to remind them that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything about the future. And if you don't hear anything else I say tonight, I want you to let that sink in. Jesus and his resurrection is called the first fruits. And as the first fruits of the resurrection, that means that he is the first installment of something better that is coming. See, first fruits, you, 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 you test the first apple and how the first apple tastes tells you what the, what the harvest is going to be like. The first fruits of the resurrection is not about Jesus' resurrection. It's about the future. It's about the resurrection of all the dead, which is the first installment of the new heaven and the new earth. So these people who were 
were on the receiving end of the book of Revelation were hanging on every word. They were riveted by the encouragement that was coming to them as they faced the persecution, as they faced the martyrdom, the suffering that would cause the average person to be overwhelmed. These early first century Christians were living with a poise and a grace and a power because they had a hope that extended beyond the life that they were experiencing. You see, this is the heart of the matter. If you have a hope, if you have a living hope of the world to come, if you have this this idea of a reality, of a final state, a next world, a heaven that is going to be given to you by God, that is being built by, you, by God for you, then what you know about your future is going to impact the way that you live your life now. Let me, let me put it in real immediate context, right? Can I, can I help you with this? If you know that there's a real heaven and a real earth and it's guaranteed for you, you'll not nearly be as upset by whoever wins a presidential election. Because your hope is not in this world. Your hope is in the world to come. Peter wrote it this way. He said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. Now the King James uses it in that, in that expression, a lively hope. It, 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 is, it is also translated a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so what you and I have is because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we have a living hope, an assured reality that one day God is going to bring down to us a new heaven and a new earth. So what does it mean to have a living hope in a real heaven, in a new heaven, in a new earth? Well, let's talk about that. First of all, let's talk about the nature of a living hope. Now, you, you, you saw this here in Revelation 21, the no mores. The reason that we struggle with this whole idea of, of the reality of heaven is that we often think of it in terms of being in another place where nothing is real. Do, do, you, do you remember? So I grew up in church, right? And um, I'm, I'm living testimony and proof that kids can survive flannel graphs and actually stay in church, right? Do you remember flannel graph stories when you were a kid? And so in my, in my pre-adult exposure to theology, my belief about heaven was this, that we weren't going to be naked. We would be clothed with these white robes, Right? So it was going to be one giant toga party in heaven. You with me? And we're all miraculously going to understand how to play the harp. Oh, I don't know where that came from. That somehow clouds have substance to them and we're going to be sitting on clouds playing harps in giant white robes, right? And then we're going to be constricted to a worship service that is going to last for eternity. That, that sounds like heaven, how it was described to you as a kid? I'm like, I'm not sure I really want to go there. Now, I'll take it over what was being offered as an alternative. 
but I wasn't highly energized about thinking, okay, that's what I want to spend the rest of my life doing. In fact, I I was kind of like, we spend enough time in church now to think we're going to do that for all eternity does not sound like heaven. It sounds like something else. Here, John says something completely different. He says that there is a new heaven and a new earth, and there's actually a new city. Think about what people do in cities, right? He doesn't say it's a church that's coming down. He says it's a city that's coming down from God out of heaven. So what we know is we're not going to be walking or floating above the clouds in the kingdom of heaven. We're actually going to be walking, and we're going to be marching, and we're going to be singing, and we're going to be hugging, and we're going to be kissing, and we're going to be dancing, and we're going to be eating, and we're going to be drinking, right? There's a marriage supper, a banquet feast, right? We're going to be doing all that in eternity in a body that is glorified, supernaturally retrofitted for human existence. So I don't believe that. Remember, Jesus ate a fish after the resurrection, meaning that he had a body. He's demonstrating that after resurrection, he had physical appetites. He had senses. He had emotions. He recognized people. He had relationships. He had fellowship with other people. He had a relational life, a spiritual life, a physical life. He had a living hope. He had a reality. And so what he actually was doing in his glorified body, listen to this statement, he was, he was relating in a physical way to a material world. So when, when John says that there's a new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to have a new body, in our new body, we're going to be able to relate in a material way or a physical way to the material world that God is going to give us. This is important. Because heaven doesn't represent a mystical, different kind of life. It is actually a recovery or a rediscovery of the life that you were meant to experience on earth before the fall. It is actually something, if you really want to know what it is, it is something that that exists in the memory, in fact, in some people to a greater degree than others, that exists in the memory of every single human being. You'll you'll actually have experiences of this. And I know some of you are going to think, well, this is a little bit mystical. C.S. Lewis described it like this. He said, heaven is the music, the remote music that you're born remembering. There's something that's whispering to you, that's, 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 that's saying to you, that's speaking into your soul. You are not made for this. You are made for something more than this. This is not your destiny. This is not the end. This is not the full manifestation of God's glory in his creation. That God has something more that he is going to give to you. And heaven is that music, that remote music that you're born remembering. So there's a deep restlessness and a longing that exists in every human being. We long for that perfect thing, that, that perfect day, that, that perfect vacation, that perfect romantic date. We're longing for the world that we know that exists, and we think it's out there. In fact, we know there's more 
than what we have in this life. There's a view about heaven that, sa- that says that heaven is the alternative to this world. That's not really what, Ro- what Revelation is teaching us here. It's actually teaching when the new heaven and the new earth comes down that it's not the alternative to this world. It's actually the rehabilitation of this world and the restoration of the world. So heaven is a rewoven, perfectly healed material world. So I don't know. I I, I don't know you well enough to know this, but have you ever watched J.R.R. Tolkien's or read Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy? Or the movies, probably, that's probably more culturally what we do is watch movies, don't read books anymore. Do you remember the part in the movie where, or in the book that, where Sam Ganji says to Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings, is every sad thing going to come untrue? So, so what, what, what's Tolkien trying to convince us? That what you see now is not really what we're heading to. What's actually happening is that we are moving backwards, that the, revel- the revelation of Jesus Christ and the revelation of the new heaven and new earth is going to restore everything to what it was in its original intent and its original design. So you that are living disappointed, you that are longing for a family that you never had, a husband that you never married, a wife that you never found, or you're longing for a body that you've never possessed or a home that you've never owned, or a picturesque experience on a beach or in a mountain, or you're looking at the world and you're saying it's failed to deliver, John says that world is coming. And you're going to have it. Everything that you have ever longed for and dreamed for, God is bringing to you. By the way, I, I I would stop there parenthetically and add, so to this girl who who suffered the loss. I said, you didn't lose your son. You you will pick up mothering that child in heaven. Now, I don't understand all this, but there will be a rectification of all wrongs, and you will always be his mom, and you will experience everything that God intended for you to experience in that relationship with him. It's just delayed for you. And if you believe that, that's a living hope. Everything that's ever been wrong will be righted. And the greatest news of all is you're going to be reconciled to God. God himself shall be with them and shall be their God. See, that's what takes the tears away. That's what takes the pain away. That's what takes the sorrow away. That's what takes the absence of things that you love, the pain of that away. One writer described it this way. Heaven is the environment of God's glory. Heaven is an atmosphere, as it were, the glory of God that heals everything and anything it touches. Just, just if, you, if this is curious to you, read the last several chapters of the book of Ezekiel and how everything that, that, is, that comes into the river of life lives. And it lives forever. In Revelation 22, you have a reference to the tree of life and a river and no more curse. In Genesis, we see that we decided to be our own masters and everything fell apart and a curse descended. We're alienated from God. We're torn apart from him. And Revelation is about reweaving and reconciling and restoring that relationship because the curse has been lifted 
by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As a result of the fall, psychologically we were falling apart. We don't know who we are. As a result of the fall, we're socially falling apart. Gender turns against gender, class against class, race against race. Physically we fall apart because now our material bodies are subject to decay and death. That's the curse. But heaven is the reverse. It is the atmosphere of God's glory. It is the healing power from the presence of God. It is heaven which gives us a reason and in a sense a motivation to look at and to look through our suffering and the issues of life and we can take them very, very seriously but we can handle anything that comes at us because we know that heaven is real. That heaven is our living hope. That's the nature of it. Let's talk about the need for a living hope. Why do we need it? When you look at Revelation 22 and verses 3 and 4, you begin to get a sense that God is up to something. Let me make a statement. What you and I believe about the future determines how you live in the present. There's an old tale about two men who were captured and thrown into a deep, dark dungeon. Before they closed the lid on the dungeon, they were told that they were going to suffer hard labor for 10 years. That was their penalty. In the tale, there's no sense that the, the penalty was not justified for what they were done. The last word from the outside world to the two men were this. One was told that his wife and child had died and that he was all alone in the world. The other man was told that his wife and child were alive and that they were waiting for him and they would be waiting for him when he got out of prison 10 years later. Into their prison sentences, the first man whose wife and child had died, he laid down, he gave up on life, he wasted away, he curled up, and he died. The other man, whose wife and son were waiting on him, endured, resisted, got stronger, became a better man. And he walked out of that dungeon 10 years later better than when he went in. You say, well, that's not surprising. No, it's really not. But it illustrates a point. It makes the point that we're making about heaven. Same circumstances, same people, same crime, same situation, and yet they responded in completely different ways. You say, how did they respond differently? You see, what you believe about your future determines how you live in the now. The now is controlled by the then. Your present is controlled by what you believe about your future. So in a very real and important way, our hope regarding the future is what makes you able to deal with the suffering of this world. Heaven is this world worked backward and reweaving the hurt and suffering and turning it into healing and glory. Say, I don't think I understand that. All right, process this. Romans 8, verse 18. For I reckon 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's an amazing statement. When you think about what, what he's doing, and, and think about these people that John was writing to. That he was banished to the Isle of Patmos. Christians were suffering. Their homes were being taken. Their possessions plundered. They were being killed by the thousands under the emperor Domitian of the Roman Empire. There was wide-scale persecution. Christians were being impaled on stakes while they were still alive. They were covered in pitch and lit in fire. They were crucified by the hundreds and even thousands along the highways in and out of Rome so that people could see them dying by the inches and by the minutes. And they were dying with such poise and grace that the very people that were persecuting them and killing them were turning to faith in Christ in unprecedented numbers. Tertullian One of the early church fathers said the blood of the martyrs is like seed. The more they kill us, the more the movement grows. You say, why is that? Because when you have a living hope, when you know the reality of heaven, when it's not just a figment of your imagination, or it's not just an alternative to the judgment and the fire of hell, when it's just this this vague thing in your mind, it means nothing. But when you really understand it, It begins to shape the way that you live. Howard Thurman was an African-American scholar. There there are a few important and what I would probably refer to as catalytic events that, that threw fuel on the fire of the civil rights movement. Howard Thurman was asked to give a lecture at Harvard University in 1947. His lecture was on the meaning of of Negro spirituals. It's probably a a not widely understood element of of modern church life and modern church music, but, but black gospel music that largely grew out of the suffering of, of, of the 1800s shaped worship in a, in a, in in churches, not just black churches, but in white churches, had a profound impact on it. In fact, years ago, I came across a statement, I think it's largely true, the the deep longing of almost every white believer is to be able to experience the reality of, of the Negro spiritual, the power and the impact of the Negro spirituals that were written out of slavery. So when Howard did this, when Howard Thurman did the study, it was, it was, it was, it was impactful. He described their music as otherworldly. In other words, it was heavenly. The spirituals are filled with references to heaven. If you think about it, in some of the songs that would be familiar to you, and to the judgment day, and to the crowns, and to the thrones, and to the robes that they were going to have. People said the slaves, and all that Christianity, and all that stuff in the resurrection, about the, about the judgment day, they just did that, that to make themselves submissive and docile, that they would have actually been better off without it. But, but Her, Howard Thurman actually looked at it differently. He said the facts have made it clear that this faith, this sung faith, served to deepen the capacity of the slaves to endure and enhance their ability to absorb 
and endure through their suffering. It taught the people how to ride high in life, how to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as a raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that although their earthly environment with all of its cruelty could not crush them, and it could not destroy them. This enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm their right to live. Think about it. Why would somebody who choose to live not give up and die in the face of that kind of mistreatment? It's because they had a living hope. It, it, was, it was deepening their capacity to live. You see, the slaves, because they knew about the new heavens and the new earth, because they knew about Judgment Day, because they knew eventually all their desires would be fulfilled and nobody was going to get away with anything, and that all wrongdoing would be rectified, and they were able to live with hope and not despair. So here's, here's what they did. These people came to, to Harvard, these intellectuals at Harvard came to Thurman, and they said, okay... So you don't really think those crowns and those robes and those thrones are all literal, do you? He said, if they're not literal, then it's not hope. Here's what he was doing. He was saying to him, it's either real or it's not. Amen. And if it's real, it actually transforms you. If it's not, it does nothing for you. By the way, this was the point with, with going back to, to Amanda, th this was the point that she, she actually had to come to grips with it. If it's not real, it doesn't change you. If it is real, it changes the way you see everything. Apply this in your own life. When the truth of this hope pierces you like a shaft, when you realize it's true that all the worst evil you can face here is in the end a passing thing because there's the light and the high beauty forever beyond its reach and there's light and beauty that is your destiny it's going to change you and you begin to see that you absolutely need a living hope a few years ago i found out i had cancer i found out about it before anybody else knew i told my wife and we took about two weeks to process it. We knew it would be a complicated issue for, for my kids and, and then ultimately for our church and for the people that, that we have influence over. And we tried to think through how we would communicate going through that. And, and so we, we did with our kids. I met with my boys first and then, then my daughter. And I was sitting with my boys who obviously they were concerned and, and I, I knew it would be a difficult conversation for them. And my oldest son, who's, who tends to be the most skeptical of, of my kids, he, just, he, he's, he is the epitome of what I would call a doubting Thomas. He wants to, he wants to touch it and, and feel it and reason it and to be able to understand it. And he said, Dad what are you going to do? I said, well, what do you mean, what are you going to do? He goes, well, how are you going to make it through this? Aren't you worried? I said, not at all. He goes, well, how can you not be worried? I said, because 
everything that I have preached is true. You don't change anything, right? It's, it's not just true because it sounds good. It's true because it's true, Amen. right? And so you live with poise and grace. You can handle whatever comes into your life because you have a living hope. You say, well, what is the secret or the reality to this living hope? Well, look what he says here. It's actually, it's very interesting how he, he tells us in Revelation 21 that we're going to be able to drink freely of this fountain of the water of life. You know how you get a living hope? You drink freely. You're freely offered this hope, but you got to drink it. You got to take it in. You got to accept it. You got to believe it. You got to receive it. It's real. When I, I started to try to have to process this, and, and I went through a series where we did some, some funerals, not just for this little boy who's five, but I buried some, some children that were stillborn, and we did funerals for people that died prematurely. My closest friend died in his 40s. Just, just some really difficult funeral experiences that we had. And it, and it, it, it did a lot in my own life. I am not any, any much of an experiential person. It's just not the way God hi, uh, hardwired me. But I remembered back from, from years and years, mostly from raising kids, that there's, there's something that's, in, in all of our fantasies, there's a reality that's underlying to those to those fantasies. And, and, and I remembered ha- having read about it from a spiritual and psychological perspective. And, and I began to think deeply about why, like for example, when the Marvel movies came out, the, the Marvel superheroes, those are the biggest box office events that, that ever happened. And there, there's something about those that, that were drawn in this little boy, Brady, when he died, he, he loved, loved Captain America. The actor, is it, isn't it Chris Martin that played um, Captain America? He actually did a, a video recording and we played it at Brady's funeral. And, and the family started a foundation and, and it's, it, it, they had permission to use the Captain America theme. And that whole thing was, is, it began to make, make sense to me. And I was using that to communicate to, to, to Amanda and to her husband, Robert, and to the young couples in our church, how, how this all comes together. See, our fascination with superheroes is just really, it's, it is that thing that Lewis talks about in the recesses of our mind, that we all have this deep longing that someone is going to rescue us right? Think, think, think of the story of Superman, right? Clark Kent. What did he do? He came from out of this world into the world, right? Disguised himself and rescued us. Do you know anybody else that's been like that? Amen. Isn't that what Jesus did? That's right. See, the truth is we all long for and even have a need, a deep psychological need for the fairy tales and the myths and the legends and the superheroes.
the old writers, and again, go back to Tolkien and, and Lewis and some of them, they wrote about the myths and the legends. In modern day, the superheroes teach us that good does triumph over evil. That there is a world of the supernatural, and, and that supernatural world means that we're all not stuck in time. The superheroes teach us that there's a way to cheat death, that there's a love that does exist, that it's eternal, that victory can be snatched from defeat, that there is a sacrificial heroism that pulls life out of the jaws of death. Do you understand? Those are deep and real human longings. There's not a person on the face of the earth that does not need those questions answered and those desires run deep in their life. But the truth is, the reality is that it appears more often than not that we live in a world where we're all going to die. There's no escape from evil. The world doesn't get any better. It only gets worse. This actually was the very exact conversation that Tolkien was having with C.S. Lewis when C.S. Lewis was not a Christian. He was an atheist. And Lewis told him, or Tolkien told Lewis in a bypassing way. So it's a fascinating study on, on evangelism. He said, look, he said, in, in every myth and legend, underneath them, there's a reality. And all the reality underneath every myth and every legend and from the story of every hero, they all point to the ultimate reality. And Lewis said, well, what is the ultimate reality? And Tolkien said, it's Jesus Christ. And Lewis began to read the Gospels. And he, and he looked at the Gospels and he become, began to study the life of Jesus. And he saw in Jesus there was a love that conquered everything. He saw in Jesus that good does triumph over evil. And that there is a way to escape death. Do you get that? That is your living hope. That is your only living hope. It is the sum and substance. It is the barest bones reality of the only thing that gets you out of the world in which you're living. Jesus Christ is the underlying reality to which every story and all of human history points. And the reason is the resurrection. The resurrection breaks into this life. Jesus punched a hole in the concrete wall that existed between the world of the real and the world of the ideal. He blasted a hole in it so that you would not be stuck in a world that is real and falling apart and decaying. He broke a hole so that you could come through so that you could go into the world that he made for you the ultimate person and the ultimate conqueror of the world has come so that you can have a god and so that he can have a people this is not a fantasy it's a reality in fact it's so real and so true that in the Apostle Paul's attempt to explain it, this is all he could get out. He said, it is written that I have not seen nor ear heard and neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them. 
it can't even begin to cross your mind the greatness and the glory of heaven that Jesus Christ has prepared for you. That's the reality of a living hope. That's how you get through. That's how you know you're going to make it. That's how you know that in the world to come, Jesus Christ is the ultimate hope and the ultimate reality. Let's pray together. So in these moments, here's what I would challenge you to do. Sometimes the truth and reality about heaven escapes us. And we think about it in terms of, of, of kind of moralism, that, that we kind of earn it, we deserve it, we should have it. And we fail to see it as a free gift that God gives to us. And what Jesus is saying to us is, I've made a way. I've, 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 I'm giving you a fountain. And you're free to come. You're free to trust me. You're free to cast your cares upon me. You're free to roll everything upon me and drink deeply from the fountain that I give you. Bring all your troubles to Jesus. Bring all your hopes to Jesus. Bring all your failures to Jesus. Bring all your sins to Jesus. And drink deeply of the water of life.